I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land that I record these episodes on, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nations. I pay my respect to their ancestors past, present and emerging. Welcome to the fourth episode in our leadership series of Goodwill Hunters. I'm Rachel Mason-Nunn and I'm the founder and host of Goodwill Hunters. As I record this, it is pouring with rain in Sydney, (laughs) as per usual, and I have my 11-month-old Labrador sleeping on my feet. I hope you enjoyed last week's episode with Giles Gunasekra. Once again, the response from all of you was overwhelming in a great way. I've had a lot of listeners get in touch to say this series is really resonating with them. It's clear many of us find ourselves navigating values-based leadership while working in a purpose-driven role. I've also received a few requests for me to share a bit more about where I'm at on my own leadership journey. I am working my way up to that. If you're listening and you have thoughts on leadership that you want to share with me, please get in touch. I'd love to hear from you. Today's guest is the fabulous Melanie Tran. Mel is a designer, innovator, and social entrepreneur. Her work as a user experience designer and social entrepreneur have been recognized internationally, including being named the winner of the Laureate International University's Global Here for Good Award in 2018. Melanie's lived experience, developed skills and knowledge allow for her work to span the disability, health and technology sectors. And if that's not impressive enough, Melanie was named in the top 100 women of influence list in 2019 by the Australian Financial Review. In this episode, Mel and I discuss Mel's formative experiences as both a woman with a disability and a woman in tech, and how these contributed to her unique capabilities as a leader. We discuss the need for leaders to integrate theory with practice, and we discuss how leaders should be constantly questioning why things are the way they are. Without further ado, here is Melanie Tran. Well, Mel, thank you again so much for being on Goodwill Hunters. It's great to have you here. Thank you for having me, Rachel. (laughs) So we've had a, a couple of discussions before this interview, and the area I really wanted to start with discussing is your formative leadership um, experiences and and what shaped your um, your leadership style that you have today. So how to, to begin, how did growing up as as a young woman with a physical disability shape your leadership style? Oh that's a great question. <laughs> um, I think there are several factors, but the primary one is that I, I think I've come to the realization of very quickly that that our society itself wasn't built for innovation, so it wasn't built for inclusion. Speaking of innovation, um, our society wasn't. It's not built for inclusion, so that has naturally, as a person with a disability, forced me to do things differently, to think differently. Um, And I think in a way, while, yes, my my disability is associated with a lot of challenges and a lot of barriers, um, but it also in a way forces innovation in, in, I guess, every aspect that I, in my life in terms of 
even access to education, employment, or just day-to-day life. Um, And that has certainly helped me realise that, and I think helped me realise that um, just because things don't work the way it can or it should, it doesn't mean that it has to stay that way. And realistically, things won't change, our system won't change unless we as individuals um, change that. And that change could only occur through our own lived experience, if that makes sense. <laughs> it does, it does. And it's it's interesting to hear you say that because one of the leadership skills that gets talked about so much is having an innovation mindset, but it's quite a difficult thing to teach. I feel like it's one of those skills that people often either have or don't. And um, it's clear that um, based on your childhood experiences, you developed that innovation mindset early, right? Yeah, and, and I think it's, like you said, I think it, it's it's hard to teach, but also it, every one of us has unique experiences and unique perspectives. And regardless of disability or not or gender or anything else, it, it's we've all had our own set of challenges um, and barriers in one way or the other, and it's just about how can we turn these challenges and these barriers into a driving force for innovation. Mm. And so your story is interesting in that that, that was the, the experience you had as a child and then you transitioned into being a woman in tech, which is a traditionally very male-dominated industry. Um, what was that like? It, it was a very interesting experience, I think, um, even when I first started studying design and being more involved in the tech and social impact space, um, to me, I still defined the term access and inclusion as um, giving people with a disability an equal chance to participate and to contribute. Um, but what I've learned and what, I, what I've learned over the years, I think, is that access and inclusion extends far beyond disability. Um, it's also about gender, education, culture, and everything else that makes us as individuals unique. Um, and I, I've been... Interestingly enough, I've been asked once if I, um, there's one time just out of conversation, someone asked me if I've ever felt discriminated against as a woman working in tech, a um, traditionally male-dominated industry. Um, And my first response was no. But then I think it's also one of those questions that you ponder on for a little bit longer afterwards. And then I sort of just, it made me think, have I have I really never been discriminated as a woman or as a woman in tech? Um, or was it just the fact that um, my disability overpowers my gender? Um, 
I don't have an answer to that, and I probably still, I don't know if I ever would. Um, but I think it's just a, it's a fascinating layer of complexity to add to um, not just myself as an individual, but also the work that I do professionally. It is a fascinating layer of complexity. It's a really fascinating question that you just posed of does disability overshadow gender? Because we talk about both of them when we're talking about inclusion um, and accessibility um, in in contemporary workplaces. And we talk about both of those as, as really important skills for leaders um, to be able to, to understand and operationalize. But is one, do you see one of the two as having a greater impact than the other? I think they both work hand in hand. In a way, for me personally, for my personal experience, I think both of these elements have shaped who I am in terms of my perspective and how I approach um, growth and I guess just professionally as well. I think, yes, sometimes I do wonder if having both, um, both of these elements and on top of that as from a cultural perspective as well, um, having all of these elements, I do wonder if that means I have to work twice as hard for my voice to be heard or twice as hard um, to fight the challenges or the barriers that come through because we, we, know, we, st- we know that I guess it's still an uphill battle when it comes to disability rights and women's rights. Uh, for me personally, I think it's it works hand in hand. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree. And and so you have um, already held a range of leadership roles, including on boards and including um, advising various social enterprises um, across the health and tech spaces. What what was your journey into leadership roles and board positions like? A very steep learning curve. <laughs> Um, I think board governance, it's such a sophisticated but complicated space to be in. But I've um, been very fortunate to have had the opportunity to serve on boards that um, have values and visions and guiding principles that very deeply align with mine. Um, like for example, I am currently serving on the board of the International Youth Foundation, which is a um, global youth organization with over 7.7 million young people, um, over 105 countries with um, 30 years of impact. Um, and I think youth empowerment and youth leadership has always been, as a young person myself, that's always been an area of interest um, for me and especially when I apply this to my work in the design, healthcare and social impact sectors. Um, it's, it's been a very interesting learning experience. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. 
I mean, we talk so much um, about the importance of getting young people onto boards um, and acknowledging that still it's quite rare to see very, you know, and by young, what do we even, we mean like under 40 almost um, on boards, which is not young by everyone's standard, but just sort of lowering the average age of of board members to get more youth representation is so important. Um, Has that been difficult to advocate for the value of young people on boards? I think yes and no because there's a lot of um, work done in this space in terms of youth advocacy, in terms of ensuring that the voices of young people are heard and included in the policies and in policy developments and um, initiatives across the sector. But I think there are three different areas that contribute to this as well. I guess the first one is equipping young people with the leadership skills. Um, in this space, I think providing the opportunities for young people to learn these leadership skills and have the confidence to be able to um, confidently voice their thoughts and their opinions in a board environment um, and making these opportunities more accessible to young people. Um, but also, I think. The second one is creating more platforms for the voices of young people to be heard, almost like, especially when it comes to um, youth-focused organisations, almost like being able to walk the talk and have a genuine platform for these voices to be heard Um, and to, yeah, and then I, I think the... The third one is also just striking that balance between um, the power dynamic, but I guess it's a quite a common conception about young people and experience, um, comparing that to someone else with, say, maybe 30 or 40 years of more experience. Um, and I think it's about, it's about finding that balance um of experience but also having the voices of young people heard um yeah I think yeah yeah no I think that's exactly right and I think your point about the need to create um platforms where young people can genuinely engage is an important one and we talk quite a lot when we're talking about diversity and inclusion um gender equity, often it can risk being a box ticking exercise. And that's sort of the worst form of these things, isn't it? Where you're just ticking a box um, eh, rather than actually genuinely creating platforms where people can authentically engage in in decision-making processes. Um, And so I think that your point's an important one there. And does that that resonate with you? Absolutely. And I think You've mentioned a really important point there around um, just ticking the box, and I think it's there's a compliance 
element to it. I mean, it, it's great and it's fantastic that we have um, compliance regulations and I guess guidelines there to help you get started in terms of ensuring that um, businesses and organisations are meeting these access and inclusion standards. Um, but I think to truly embark in the access and inclusion um, journey, it's, it's more of a journey rather than a process. Um, and it's, it's not really about ticking the boxes and hitting the finish line. It's about starting this journey but knowing that there is no finish line because there is there is no perfect solution to say that we are 100% inclusive, we are 100%, um, I guess, uh, being able to say that for sure. It, it's it's more about going, using the checklist or the guidelines per se as a way, as a starting point um, and using that to do and, and being able to go far beyond that compliance piece, that's what would set a business or an organisation apart. It's such a good point that we don't, organisations don't get to a point where they go, okay, we're inclusive, we did it, like, done. Like it is, as you say, it's an ongoing mm. process and, and hopefully one that goes beyond compliance and is one of continuous improvement and learning and growth rather than some finish universal finish line that applies to everyone. Yeah, and realistically there is there's no one size fits all. No matter what industry you work in, um everyone has such unique needs and um there's definitely no one size fits all. So it's about that learning experience, but also I think having the right voices in the room to guide you to make these decisions is a huge one too. Um, I think like what we spoke about a little earlier around balancing that power dynamic and making sure that um, in terms of a leadership perspective, we've got a balance of experience but also authentic voices from young people that can engage and hold just as much power. Um, the same rule sort of applies when it comes to thinking about access and inclusion for a business or an organisation. The, the foundations are the same regardless of who you are, how old you are, how much experience you have, everyone has a unique perspective to bring to the table and it's about bringing in the right voices at the right time to be able to make decisions to move forward. Mm. So building upon that, what are some of the questions you think leaders should be asking themselves when they're reflecting on how well they're um, on going on their journey of of diversity and inclusion? Is it questions like, do we have the right voices at the table? Or what could they be asking themselves? I think the common question that I often like to ask or to ask people, especially when it comes to diversity and inclusion, is um, 
what are the consequences that your business or your organization would face if you're not if you can't embrace diversity and inclusion? Um, what are the risks? What does that mean to the business or the organization? And I think from there, it's almost like sometimes it's hard to think about what the benefits are if you're not completely sure. But when you start thinking about what the risks are, then it's almost natural default behavior for us to come and say, well, we have to do and mitigate all of these risks to make sure that we can provide the best possible solution um, and do right by the people who we are serving, essentially. Um, so I guess, yeah, in a nutshell, the question really is, what are the consequences? What are the risks? Um, yeah. Mm, yeah. Yeah, it's a good one. Sometimes it's a lot easier to think what's our worst case scenario than what's our best. And when you, it's it's an unfortunate lens getting like deliberately asking people to think sort of a worst case scenario. But often I think when we're talking about things like this, it's a lot easier to understand where do we not want to be than where do we want to be. Yeah. And I think, um, and it's sort of something that I briefly touched on earlier as well. It's around that challenges drive innovation. It has potential um, and power to drive innovation and disruption. Um, if anything, our global pandemic has has taught us or shown us is that once we're forced to do something a certain way, then we have no choice but to do it, but to make it work like for example, work from home and remote working, there's always an element of hesitation um, and fear around that pre-pandemic. Um, everything, I guess, from accessibility to data security to everything else that comes along with remote working. But all of a sudden, the whole world was hit with the pandemic and that has forced us to change the way we work, the way we now think about employment, the way that we now provide opportunities for employment. Um, and it's the same with education and the same with healthcare and the same with technology. We have seen this time and time again over different sectors and different examples of just how powerful um, it can be sometimes when we are forced to face challenges and there's no other way for us to turn other than to stare straight ahead at the uncertainties and the unknowns and move forward and learn as we go. And I think now with two years into the pandemic, it's, we've all got a collective lived experience of going through the same thing, um, no matter where you are in the world, um, and being able to take that learning and apply that to um, our day-to-day -day work, our day-to-day -day lives. Mm. Yeah, we've become 
Well, I'd like to think we've become more comfortable with living with uncertainty through this process um, of COVID. But on on that point, you, you spoke there about the importance of learning as you go. And something that we've spoken about in the past is the need for leaders to be able to strike a balance between research and theory and practical real world lived experience. And I know that comes up a bit in your work with um, user experience design and, and your work in tech more broadly. How difficult is it to strike that balance? So I've worked as a product designer that specializes in user experience design and um, product development in the disability tech and social impact sectors. Um, but I've also had the opportunity to, uh, I've always been passionate about the technology and design innovation in healthcare space as well. Um, so I've had the opportunity to conduct my research in this space. At the moment, it's um, my master's research, but soon to be converted to a PhD. Um, but essentially, my research is looking at using design and technology to improve the communication experience for um, young people with uncontent condition and clinicians who clinicians in terms of doctors and nurses um, who have experience in pediatric emergency medicine. Um, so it's a very interesting problem space to be in from a research perspective. But as I'm doing my read, both doing research and working as a product designer. Um, at the same time, in parallel, has definitely um, provided a different perspective in the way we do things. And I think that just that also alludes to your question earlier around um, striking that balance between research theory and real world practical experience. Um, I think for any business or any organisation, it's just as much about the real-world practice as it is about the research itself. I think when you're able to bring the research learnings and theories and put that into practice, um, that just naturally opens up more possibilities and opportunities to innovate and to disrupt and to learn, um, and vice versa, if you apply your practical experience and learnings into research, that brings the research to life and it enhances the body of knowledge. Um, so I think once you're able to do, once you're able to strike that balance, that's when the real innovation and disruption can occur, that's where the magic happens. Um, and in terms of being able to strike that balance, I think the first step to that is to be able to close that feedback loop and to understand that research doesn't work in silo and so does 
and it's the same for real-world practical experience. Yeah, it's sort of a, a bit of a long-winded answer to your question. <laughs> no, no, it's a really important one. And it's, it's that ability to integrate the research with the practical is such a critical skill for leaders, but again, one that we don't talk about that much. But it's interesting that with your journey of doing your master's and now a PhD, congratulations. Um, That's very exciting. Um, Alongside your your practical day-to-day work, once again, I think that's given you an opportunity to hone that really important skill, right? Yeah, and I think it, I would, I hope this would also be a unique opportunity to create um, platforms for more of these discussions to occur. And um, I think the biggest thing, it's sort of sort of similar to what we were speaking about earlier around just because of the global pandemic and COVID that we've, we've sort of grown comfortable to um, uncertainties and um, unknowns and maybe that's also I guess some mindset that I've um, taken with me in this in this instance in terms of um, I've worked in the industry for so many years and when I started my research journey it's quite a different experience and it's taken me a while and I'm still learning to adjust to the way academic research works but um I think it also creates a unique opportunity for us to be able to learn and that safe safe space to be able to make mistakes I mean whether it's research or practical work in the industry um I think we all have to be comfortable with making mistakes and be and know that it is okay to make these mistakes as long as we can we learn from it and we grow from it um again probably a bit of a growth mindset to this as well would that be your main piece of advice for aspiring leaders whether they be women or young people or people with a disability would it be to be comfortable making mistakes yes I think I feel so I think it's to learn that it, yeah, to be to be able to understand that it's okay to learn to make mistakes, but also that just because things don't work the way it should or it could, it doesn't mean that it has to be that way. Um, regardless of who you are, I think the one thing that I've learned personally is that it takes courage to live outside the expectations of society. Um, and it's it's just about being able to be bold, be bold and be brave and being able to embrace your own lived experience. Um, and also, I think, as a person living with a disability, I just have gotten used to the status quo that comes along with it and constantly being told no or being told what others think that I could do. Um, But I think it's, and that sort of in a way, at points it's also made me doubt my own ability and my own capabilities. 
Um, and for a long, long time, for and I'd say for a majority of my my life, it sort of led me to be more ashamed of um, embracing my own lived experience. So I've well, over the years, I would um, work twice as hard to be seen as a subject matter expert in the in the design technology healthcare space, um, but not as a person with a disability. And I think that itself has, um, and that experience has taught me the value of um, embracing my own lived experience because I've seen the impact of it, I've seen the power it has and the way it's shaped my own perspective. Um, so... My word of advice would be to embrace your own lived experience and never underestimate the power of your lived experience. Yeah. Wow. Thank you for sharing your story and your insights with us so generously. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Join me next week for the next instalment in our leadership series. 